This is Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads, monthly episode two, Defense Wins Championships. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton as we discuss some of the most topical themes in the spread markets today. With college football starting this weekend and the NFL just around the corner, we discuss how the popular football analogy Defense Wins Championships can be applied to spread market portfolios heading into what we expect to be a messy year end. Each month, we offer a view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics that you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Sticking with our football analogy, why don't we kick this episode off by talking about how spreads have performed over the past month since our last recording. I'll defer to you, Danny. How have spreads played out over the past month? Well, as we highlighted in our last podcast, we expected this month to be one of spread decompression, and that's exactly what we have seen. So high-quality spreads like SSAs are virtually unchanged from last month, whereas high-yield spreads are as much as 60 basis points or more wider from where they were at the beginning of August. Investment-grade corporates are about 10 to 20 basis points wider, which, all things considered, given the deterioration and risk sentiment, isn't too bad. In fact, our model for investment-grade corporate spreads estimates that spreads following this risk-off move are about 20 basis points or a standard deviation and a half rich to their fundamentals. So not too bad performance by investment-grade corporates. Dan, any thoughts on why spreads have hung in so well given the sort of deteriorating risk sentiment? Yeah, it's definitely been a bit surprising, especially considering the equity market weakness we saw during August and the continued deterioration of the trade front. But I think it's just worth highlighting here, perhaps the most important driver of spreads so far this year, which is extremely supportive technicals. Looking just at the high quality markets right now, SSAs, agencies, and things like that, we have net issuance in the dollar markets of over negative 60 billion so far this year. That puts us on pace with last year as by far the lightest issuance we have on record in our data going back to the financial crisis. And if we expand that list to include corporates, corporate market issuance has been rather light this year. Am I correct? Yeah, that's right. So in comparison with the last three years, issuance to date is about 87.5% of the last three-year average in investment-grade corporates. So pretty low. So it just seems like when we're in this environment where treasury issuance is at record levels and continues to grow, well, at the same time, spread market issuance is at the light end of the past five years, really. It's no surprise that spreads are remaining very tight. And then perhaps the other most important driver of spreads in 2019, which is very narrow swap spreads, 
continues to be in force as well. Swap spreads remain at historical levels and are testing all-time lows at the short end. And I think going forward, there's not much reason to think that spreads are going to really reverse course in the very near term. We'll talk about swap spreads later this episode and, and how they may impact credit spreads going forward. But sticking just with technicals for the moment, looking at the high-quality spread markets, we typically see September as, as a rather heavy period of issuance. So there could be some concern on the technical front. That concern could be exacerbated by movements in cross-currency basis, which has put U.S. dollars on sides for European SSA borrowers consistently and significantly for only the second time this year. And the first episode was only a couple weeks in April before euros moved back into the more attractive funding currency. So we have a heavy seasonal issuance period with dollars on sides. We could expect to see a fair amount of issuance in the dollar markets, but just Given how light issuance has been so far this year and strong demand side technicals, I'm not too concerned about how well the market will take down supply. First, let's just look at SSA funding programs for this year. As of August 22nd in 2019, the SSAs had their lightest remaining borrowing need of at any point in the last five years. And redemptions for U.S. dollar SSA product are extremely heavy in August and September. In fact, going back over the past five years, We've never seen redemptions in a two-month period as heavy as we're getting in August and September. So even a fair amount of supply we should be getting, I expect to be readily digested by the market. I don't think technicals and high-quality spreads are really going to weigh on spreads enough to see any significant widening in the near term. Dan, what's your view on technicals and corporates here? So similar to the SSA market, we think issuance is going to remain very, very light into the year-end. Additionally, on the demand side, we see reason to expect technicals to keep spreads anchored. Investment-grade bond funds have seen 34 straight weeks without a net outflow. That's pretty remarkable considering all the moves that have happened in the market. Additionally, we see some reason to expect some foreign money to start flowing into bond funds given the plunging global yields and the elevated levels of negative yielding debt around the world we see reason to think that some of that money will move into U.S. dollar products, specifically high-quality products like investment-grade corporates and high-quality spreads. You make a good point that we could start to see, really for the first time in a few months, meaningful buying from foreigners in the U.S. dollar market. So on balance, fair to say, Dan, that there's not much reason to think that spreads are going to move wider here in the near term? In the near term, sure. I think that uh, there's not going to be that supply that comes in September that, that usually has the potential to widen spreads. And I think there's going to be some demand returning, especially as Europeans come back from holiday and are looking to buy. Yeah. And with swap spreads likely to remain very low, which is reinforced by the unlikelihood of a repo facility at this point and no solution to the oversupply of treasury problem, narrow swap spreads still relatively supportive technicals should keep spreads rather narrow. But looking ahead to later in the year, we identify a few sources of stress that could actually overwhelm the technical story and finally push spreads a bit wider. Specifically, we identify six factors for spread market participants to keep on their radar as potential sources of wider spreads, and we'll talk about each one. The first one, and probably the most important one, Dan, has, has to be the continued trade tensions between the U.S. and China and a recent escalation in the trade war. What's your view? Yeah, without a doubt. We think that the trade war is going to start to impact corporate profitability for the third and fourth quarter of this year. And we don't see an obvious end to the trade war in sight. There's a lot of 
rhetoric going around, but it seems like both sides are intent on continuing the trade war and holding firm until the other side blinks, but we don't see an end of it until after this presidential election. So in addition to the ongoing trade war, I think just the absolute level of spreads is going to begin to weigh on markets, specifically as we come out of these summer doldrums and some investors on vacation, particularly in Europe, get back in their seats and take a look and realize just how tight spreads are. And we've seen some evidence of that so far in just the new issue SSA deals we've had in the past few weeks. We haven't seen any tightening from initial price thoughts on any of them. And obviously, we wouldn't consider that an alarm bell for spread widening, but it is a deviation from how spread markets have performed most of the year in 2019. We've gotten used to seeing IPTs come at a certain level and then tighten one, two basis points from there, given overwhelming demand. We haven't seen that tightening, which just suggests that there might be a little bit of balking at current spread levels, especially when we think about central banks and how important central banks are to the SSA market that primarily compare SSAs to the treasury curve are just outright yields. And from both vantage points, spreads are rather unattractive here. So I think just the absolute narrow level of spreads is going to start to cause some pressure as we see some increased primary market supply coming at wider spreads in order to clear the market. Agreed. It's certainly, like you said, it might not be an alarm bell, so to speak, but it should start to weigh on demand the tighter that spreads get. And this reduced demand could exacerbate some spread widening. Yeah, I think it's also worth mentioning quickly a third source of potential spread widening, which is coming out of Europe. October 31st is the current Brexit date. And with Boris Johnson now installed as prime minister, there has to be growing concern of a hard Brexit. Now, we recognize that market fatigue around the Brexit issue is very real. And there remains a very good chance that October 31st isn't the actual Brexit date, especially given headlines today that the EU may consider renegotiating the withdrawal agreement. But it's something that has to be kept on radars. In addition, Italy has the potential to push its way back into the spotlight going forward. Matteo Salvini has recently pushed for elections in an attempt to capitalize on his party's success at European parliamentary elections in May. Now, given the complexity of European politics, it's not clear whether or not He's going to succeed in getting elections, and at this point, it actually appears somewhat unlikely. But even if there aren't new elections, we're talking about a significantly weakened five-star party that now will have to make serious concessions come budget time. And obviously, if there is new elections, the possibility that Salvini takes power. So while we characterize European risk as marginal at the moment, there seems to always be percolating risk factors that need to be monitored that could send spreads wider into the end of the year. And you think those are both Q4 stories, right? I don't know that I could say that. I think at this point, the base case would probably have to be that neither one of them is a Q4 story, but they both have the potential to become a Q4 story, particularly Brexit, if nothing changes. So it's just the, the range of outcomes on both topics is so wide that it's hard to really take it into account in your investment outlook, but they have to be monitored nonetheless. Moving on to the fourth factor that we identify as potentially moving spreads wider in the near term, the inverted yield curve. Somewhat obvious, I suppose, but Dan, you've done some research on how spreads have performed in the past few inverted yield curve episodes, and what have you found? So there have been three instances of inverted yield curves since the mid-1990s. While in two of the instances, spreads were actually fairly contained for about six months to a year after the inversion of the yield curve, 
in none of these instances did spreads actually outperform or tighten versus treasuries. At best, historically, spreads kind of muddied along and remained about flat to within five or 10 basis points of where they were at the day of the inversion of the yield curve. But we don't see much potential historically for outperformance. Eventually, spreads in each episode did widen following yield curve inversion. But the timing of that is really uncertain. It took anywhere from a couple months to you know as long as two years for spreads to really widen following yield curve inversion. But the bottom line is we think that is one of many signals to suggest that the economy is going to start to turn and spreads should move wider in the medium to longer term. So fair to say the elevated odds of recession going forward are now going to sort of be permanently baked into credit spreads at these levels. Yep. Moving on to the fifth factor that we're keeping an eye on that could push spreads wider later this year is just seasonals. Specifically looking at average spread changes by month over the past five years, we find that October and November are two of the three worst performing months on average in spread markets. And the rationale for why that's the case makes sense. If we think about it, in both high-quality spread markets and in the corporate markets, January is the heaviest issuous month of the year. Looking at just the SSA market, as much as 20% of total annual volume comes in January alone. And when you get into the October-November window, delaying investment becomes less punitive. You can just put money in cash or repo or whatever it may be, and then hope to pick up some new issue premium in January. Also, in each of the past few years, we've seen somewhat messy year-end episodes where it's difficult to come by funding. And having positions on your books means more positions that need to be financed over year-end. And maybe that's not something I want to deal with, particularly when I know I can reload in January. So you see spreads typically underperform in October and November. And we have no reason to expect anything different this time around, especially considering the sixth and final factor behind why we think spreads could suffer later this year. And that is our expectation for what could be a very messy year-end this time around. So stepping back, why do you think this year-end is going to be particularly messy? Well, the answer to that one came in the July minutes for me, and it was the discussion of a Fed standing repo facility, or more specifically, lack thereof. After getting spotlight treatment, really, in the June minutes, there was absolutely no mention made of a standing repo facility in the July minutes. And one of the reasons that we thought that there would be a standing repo facility implemented this year is that we thought the Fed would want to avoid the potential for a messy year-end that not having a repo facility would incite. And now, I mean, there could be a surprise announcement at the September meeting. We can't rule that out, particularly if they announce a quote-unquote test facility accessible to primary dealers. But at this point, the base case has to be that there won't be a repo facility at the end of the year. And without a repo facility, we expect that messy year-end that we thought the Fed would try to avoid to really materialize. And regarding why we're expecting it to be a messy year-end, there are a few factors, but they can really kind of all be summarized by one thing, treasury supply. It's been a huge story this year, and I think it's going to be an even bigger story going into the end of the year. Now, for reference, at year-end last year, LIBOR OIS touched 42.5 basis points. And Given where we sit today, there's every reason to think that this year-end could be just as bad as last year and potentially worse. To demonstrate why, I've just gathered up a few numbers, both where we sit today and where things were last year. And to try to get a gauge on some important short-end metrics heading into the end of the year, the first of which is dealer inventory of treasuries. 
at the moment sitting around 225 billion compared to last year of 153 billion at this time. Secondly, treasury supply. Last year, between September and December of 2018, we saw treasury supply of 318 billion. Dan, what are the most recent projections for treasury coupon and bill supply between September and December of this year? We're looking at about $516 billion worth of treasury issuance. Yeah, so that's obviously a pretty huge number. And then I also wanted to highlight just Treasury's operating cash balance. Right now, Treasury's operating cash balance is around $145 billion, which is really near absolute minimums over the past five years if we set aside debt ceiling episodes. And what that means is that basically there's more reserves for Treasury to take out of the system as they run up their cash balances. Right. Naturally, Treasury supply projections and Treasury's operating cash balance are inherently related. But we bring up Treasury's operating cash balance independently just because of the sort of double impact that issuance that is used to increase the cash balance has. It first adds bill supply to the market, but secondly, it removes reserves from the system, which further adds to short end pressure. And for reference, at this time last year, Treasury's operating cash balance was $353 billion. Now, Dan, it's my understanding that Treasury is aware of the impact that increases in the cash balance has, and that might change the way they increase their cash balance this time around. Yeah, that's probably right. We think that they'll move in a more orderly manner than they did in, say, the spring of 2018, where they flooded the market with $330 billion worth of Treasury bills and sent LIBOR OIS to about 60 basis points. Now, that said, we still think that even a gradual increase in Treasuries and this run-up in cash balances, even if it's done gradually, should still have some negative impact on funding. Yeah, even if they go more gradually, Treasury's cash balance is only going up. So we have a much less supportive picture for the front end heading into this year end. And then you combine that with the traditional year-end calendar pressures we see from GSIB risk surcharge determination dates and all that, that causes bank balance sheet to become much less available into the end of the year. And it seems like this year-end could be even worse than last year. But we also have to acknowledge there are a few reasons to think that pressure may not be as bad this time around. And really, I find two in particular. The first of which is the proliferation of sponsored repo or FICC repo. At this time last year, no month had seen the share of sponsored repo transactions conducted with money market funds go higher than 10%. But in the most recent prints in June and July, we saw FICC transaction volume reach about 25%. So we've seen sponsored repo grow. That has a netting benefit for banks at the end of the year that will increase their capacity to conduct repo and ultimately should help repo rates stay a bit more contained heading into year-end than they have in years past. And secondly is just the experience that banks have gained in dealing with some of these regulatory issues. So last year was the first year that GSIB risk surcharges were fully implemented, and banks likely had less visibility into how much capital they would need and even where they were sitting heading into the end of the year, so they had to be overly cautious. The expectation this time around would be that technology and planning have improved over the course of the past year. So banks can be a bit more nimble heading into year-end, given the expectation that they have a better idea of where they sit and where they need to be come year-end. So with those two reasons to think that year-end might not be as bad, combined with the reasons we talked about before that it could even be worse, 
I think the experience of last year is sort of a fair target. This year could closely resemble last year. And if that's the case, a target of 42.5 basis points on LIBOR OIS seems fair to me. And last year, when LIBOR OIS widened, we saw a pretty significant reaction in spread markets. Dan, how did the corporate market perform at the end of last year? Yeah, so corporates last year in the fourth quarter widened by about 40 basis points. Now, granted, equities were also nosediving at the time, but I think it's fair to say that the stress in the financial system could have been behind both to some extent. We expect a similar kind of reaction in corporates as possible this time around. A lot of it, again, has to do with the risk sentiment in the market and how equities perform and whether we see another kind of disruption in funding markets. I agree with that the declining equities probably had something to do with why corporate spreads move so much wider toward the end of the year. But it's also not difficult to imagine, as we talked about earlier, a declining equity market heading into this year. So if we see a repeat of last year in terms of a messy year end, we should see a direct implication for credit spreads. And if corporate spreads move 40 wider, we wouldn't expect high quality spreads to remain insulated from that. Obviously, a move wider in those markets would be less pronounced. But in addition to the direct impact, there's also the indirect impact on spreads from a wider LIBOR OAS, which could come from widening swap spreads. Now, it's important to note here that despite the wider LIBOR OAS last year, swap spreads didn't really move much wider. But we expect that to be different this time around, primarily because of where we are already. So last year, as LIBOR OAS widened, repo elevated sharply. And so increases in LIBOR were sort of offset by increases in repo, and swap spreads didn't really widen. But given how narrow swap spreads have come already this year and how elevated repo already is, we wouldn't expect to see an offsetting increase in repo rates this time. We'd expect to see LIBOR moving wider, sort of independently. And once LIBOR widens sufficiently, we should start to see that drag swap spreads higher as well. And as we see swap spreads moving wider, that also impacts credit spreads moving wider, particularly given how tight swap spreads have been all year. One final factor to keep monitoring as we talk about all this is the behavior of money market funds. Perhaps one of the main reasons the Fed didn't implement a repo facility this time around is because actually short-term rates have performed fairly well, right, Dan? That's right. So while repo has been elevated for most of this year, actually in the last month or so, repo OIS has been fairly low. Repos traded pretty close to Fed funds. As a result, the Fed's target rate has been pretty close to the range recently. And what's driving repo trading relatively well in recent weeks, despite Treasury issuance really starting to pick up? Well, one factor, I think, is the behavior of money market funds. Money market funds have seen a lot of inflows recently as the yield curve has been inverted. And the way that they've invested these increased assets is in shorter WAMs. And a lot of that has gone into repo, whereas earlier in this year, there was sort of a more pronounced imbalance between supply and demand in the repo market. Repo has actually been under control as a result of these money market fund investments. That's interesting. It seems to me that with the Fed likely to cut rates, that money market funds would be incentivized to extend WAMs and lock in higher yields for as long as they can with the expectation that future yields will be lower once the Fed cuts rates. Why are they shortening WAMs? Well, simply because the market is pricing these rate cuts in the future, the front end of the yield curve is very inverted right now. You get a much better pickup by investing overnight than you do even out to one, three months. And you hit on a very important point there. It's that money market WAMs are very short given the inversion of the yield curve. And I think that's important to remember as we head into the September FOMC meeting because 
our expectation is the Fed has to be aggressive at the September meeting. Obviously, the July cut didn't really result in what the Fed was looking for. Somehow, the curve is actually flatter after the Fed first cut rates. And the Fed needs to do something to head off this negative feedback loop that could be pushing the economy toward recession. They need to install confidence into financial markets again. They need to steepen that curve out. And so does that come in a 50 basis point rate cut, or is there something else that they could do to be sort of more dovish than the market expects? I mean, my expectation at this point is that it's going to be a 50 basis point cut. That's obviously not a crazy projection at this point, but whether it's a 50 basis point rate cut or something else that the Fed implements at the September meeting in order to install confidence, if they're able to do that, we should see two primary things happen. We should see the curve re-steepen, and we should see equity markets perform well. Both of those things could have an impact on the money market complex, if you think about it. If stock market sentiment returns to being bullish, we could see outflows from money market funds into the stock market. And or if the curve steepens and we see term short-end markets with higher yields than overnight, we could see money market fund assets start to move further out the curve in order to pick up higher yield. And then you see overnight rates sort of underperform and repo move higher. And we'd also note that September is just seasonally not a good month for money market inflows. Looking at average total money market flows over the past five years, and this is total, so the impact of money market reform, it won't be felt in these numbers because that was really just a shift. We see only a few months of the year where on average money market flows are negative, and they tend to be around dates when tax payments are heavy. April, for example, is the largest outflow for money market funds of the year, as it's also the largest tax payment month. Well, most years, the second largest tax payment month is September. So we could see money market fund outflows just coming from September tax payments, which could further put pressure on short-term rates. Now, what does that mean? So we should see repo rates perhaps move a little bit higher, but I'd argue that the larger impact would be felt by LIBOR, and that's particularly as we head into year-end, meaning without a repo facility, which incentivizes market participants of all kinds to try and lock up funding ahead of the end of the year. And if you look back over the past four years, we've seen LIBOR OIS widening coinciding with the scramble for year-end funding. Now, the one year that we didn't see an increase in LIBOR OIS was 2016, which we can likely throw out because of money market reform, LIBOR-OIS was already elevated, so it didn't elevate further. But what's very interesting to note is that in the three of those four years, we've seen the scramble for funding kind of move earlier and earlier. In 2015, we saw LIBOR-OIS move wider as people look to lock up funding in mid to late November. Then in 2017, we saw the widening really begin in early November. And then in 2018, LIBOR OIS started marching higher in mid to early October as people look to lock up funding earlier and earlier. And this time around, I'd expect that to be a fair target as well. On October 2nd, that three-month window takes you over year-end. So we should start to see pressure on the three-month point in LIBOR right around October 1st as market participants look to lock up funding heading into what's expected to be a messy year-end. So any money market fund outflows that we talked about could happen or a scramble for funding or the combination of both could really start to accelerate pressure on LIBOR beginning around early October. And that's when we expect to see swap spreads start to be influenced wider and potentially credit spreads, especially if you take into account some of the other factors we talked about earlier. So Dan, how about we bottom line this? 
Near term, what's our expectation? Near term, we don't see many risks to spreads in our markets. We think that the technicals are going to continue to support spreads. That said, in the longer term, we expect that there are several factors that can lead to spread widening. We highlight the trade war, outright valuations, bearish seasonal factors, the yield curve inversion, potential for a messy year end, and then risks out of Europe. All could send spreads wider, probably more of a fourth quarter story. Exactly, Dan. So that's why we think September is going to be a good time to look to lighten up on spread positions versus treasuries, or at the very least migrate hedges to LIBOR, because you might be able to see credit spreads outperform our expectation for widening swap spreads later in the year. And then in terms of where along the curve and what sectors you want to buy, I think this is where the defense wins championships mentality really takes hold. We continue to favor up in credit trades as we continue to see spreads decompress. And we actually favor looking a little bit further out on the spread curve, given how spreads typically perform during yield curve inversions. Right. So after the treasury curve inverts, generally about one to two years later, we start to see a swift flattening of credit spread curves. And this just reflects that as the economy starts to turn and credit risk heightens, investors begin to demand a higher premium for holding short-dated debt, whereas longer-term debt trades with the sort of expectation that any near-term stress will subside over time. Thanks, Dan. I think we'll wrap it up there. This concludes Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads Monthly Episode 2, Defense Wins Championships. Thanks to everyone for listening and enjoy kickoff. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast, 
No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 